but um, you are unbelievably important. I don't mean that in a way to puff you up, but you as, as his church, you know, we often look at all the weaknesses, don't we? Maybe, maybe it's just me. I, I, you know, I've, I, love, I love church, but I often find myself looking often at the weaknesses and the things that aren't that great, <laughs> all that, that, you know, the imperfections. But just, I know, just before I, I tell the story, I just felt the Lord in his kindness and in his mercy and in his gentleness just wanted just to state the obvious afresh today that you are so incredibly important to him. And, uh, you know, we are the church, aren't we? The church is uh, like a life life raft, a lifeboat to a world that that is drowning. You know? And, and, we have an enemy who prowls around and wants to do damage to that life raft. He wants to get into our brains as often as possible and try and make us look at all of the things about us that aren't that great. And I guess I just want you to know, I, want, I feel the Lord wants you to know deeply in your souls to, to, today, you might feel very weak, very fragile. If you know Jesus... Um, the, the, the treasure in your soul, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of knowing the truth, the treasure of having the Holy Spirit in you, despite all of your outward frailty and fragility, means that you are unimaginably important. Unimaginably important. Just yesterday, my oldest daughter, Daisy, was, uh, she's, she, she loves dancing. I'm here like dancing. She loves dancing and she's 10 and she'll dance anywhere, anytime. And uh, she had the privilege of dancing at a nursing home in Canterbury. And she went in and did this little solo and uh, her friends were doing various things. But in that room, actually, it was a a pretty uh, tough environment. Many of the people were were approaching the end of their lives. And and, and Daisy, she said she found it quite, I don't know, it's quite sad in a way. It, it wasn't the most joyful. She was trying to do her little sort of party piece, you know, trying to lift the spirits a bit. But there was a certain sense of morbidity, to be honest with you. Half an hour later, we're just coming in our house, and a, an elderly lady is walking down our, our street. We, walk, we live in Hollow Lane, just where Barry and Moran used to live, just around the corner from them. And there's a, an elderly lady with the biggest smile you've ever seen, trying to catch our attention just walking past us and so you know we obviously feel we have to make eye contact because she's not going to let us get past without her saying she's like oh hello and she says I'm your neighbor I actually live just around the corner from you and you've been here for a year we've never met the Lilla and I said oh hi I'm Tom and she says oh I know who you are I go oh all right okay and she says uh, I go to Barton Evangelical Church and uh, Eric's our leader and I know you and Eric are very close and Lilla and we're like oh this is wonderful so we're chatting away with this lady and, um, and then she mentions her husband, and she says, my husband has um, uh, vascular, early stages of uh, vascular dementia, and her face falls. And uh, she says, it's a cruel thing. And the days where things are positive are less and less. And then she breaks into this massive smile. She says, but we know where he's going. He loves the Lord I found myself saying to her the most inappropriate thing. I just said, 
But it doesn't get much better than that, does it? <laughs> she laughed. I was like, I'm the worst pastor ever. She's, her husband's dying, but she's rejoicing. And she's not trying to be tough. She's not trying to be... And there in that very normal lady at one level is the treasure of the gospel. Hallelujah. She knows the living God. And I just couldn't help but see this contrast. Half an hour earlier, Daisy's in this, in this, in this place and there's a very different atmosphere. And there is a lady there with dignity, with confidence, with, with almost a righteous pride in her husband that he is dying well because he's not actually really dying. He's not really dying. Amen. As if you've got a Bible, I want to just share a, a, a scripture to anchor the story that I'm going to share today. But I guess I just want to come with the most simple, profound, well, simple, basic, foundational truth that if you're a Christian, you would have heard a hundred thousand times. If you're not a Christian here today, it's really important you hear this, is that God really, really loves you. Amen. He really, really, really loves you. It says this in Ephesians, this is a, a written by a guy called Paul, who had a pretty tough life actually, if you want to know much about him, he, 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 yeah, he really knew suffering, capital S suffering, but he, he wrote these words which are very joyful, they're a bit like that lady at the gate, outwardly she could list all the things that are breaking her heart, but somehow there's this power in her, there's this power in her to be able to say, and yet my God is good. My God has not forsaken me. My, my God is more wonderful, more glorious, more kind, more merciful, more generous than any other person could ever be. And it says this, Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God. It's like, worthy is our God. Praise to you, God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians 1.3. Who has blessed us in Christ with a little bit. Oh no, that's not quite right, is it? You can help me out here. With what? With every. Let's set together the word every. Every spiritual blessing. Hallelujah. In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when we were really impressive and had managed to get to church or do that alpha call, when he chose us, when we'd, we'd really given that extra amount of money, or we'd, we'd, we'd really figured it out in our brains. No, no, he didn't, he didn't say that. Here we go. This is absolutely mind-blowing. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That we should be adopted as his children. Hallelujah. I mean, that we should be adopted and blameless before him. It's the truth that this lady was living in the good of yesterday. Henry Nguyen, who was a Harvard professor and then gave it all up to look after the severely mentally handicapped for most of his life. He said, he said that we are loved before we were born. And we will be loved after we die. This life is simply a brief moment where our Father wants us to realize how beloved and loved we actually are. Isn't that amazing? That we were loved before we were made. We will be loved for eternity. So we need to hear that hourly, right? We need, to, we need to live in the love of God. It says in Jude, keep yourself in the love of God. And um, as Steve has alluded 
uh, to my story. I'm, I'm almost 20 years old now as a Christian. I'm almost 40 years old as a man. And I never get sick of thinking about the kindness of our God towards me. The, the, the humour of God. I mean, Barry and Maureen have so much ammo on, on what I was like when I stumbled into the church. You know, I had to keep paying them off, you know, so they don't tell everyone. But if you, perhaps you're not a Christian here today and you're thinking, oh, all these guys seem a bit, you know, they know their Bibles and they're all a little bit, you know, kind of together and I'm not like that. Hey, listen, don't believe that lie. We're all a bit of a, a mess, to be honest with you. We're a little bit weak. We're broken. And that's always going to be the case. We, as a church, are, are so unimpressive. But he is so impressive. He's so kind, so generous, so loving. And that's our only hope. It's our only hope. And uh, my story was that I was... I stumbled along to the city church almost 20 years ago. I had uh, long hair, and I was a bit of a hippie, and uh, I ended up being ambushed, really, by God. I wasn't searching for God. I ended up giving my life to Jesus, and uh, at the end of my, uh, my degree, I ended up staying for what I thought would be one year, and then it became two, and then three, and four, and me, and Barry, and Maureen, and Josie, uh, we sort of, were all in one office, in, in the high school, two offices, wasn't it, at that point, in the centre of Canterbury. God was so kind, so kind. Despite our weaknesses and our limits, he blessed the church. And for the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of attempting to lead the eldership. You know in the films when, they're, when, they're, when the pilot sort of dies and they're like, quick, we need someone, someone, a passenger to fly the plane, you know, that kind of scenario? That's what it's felt like, you know, that... I'll, I'll have a go at doing this thing, but I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sure Steve would say it's exactly how he feels. Um, and so it's been an amazing 20 years, and uh, we absolutely love East Kent. We love, this is home. It's home. And uh, we've seen God do wonderful things, but we're hungry to see so much more. Yes, in Canterbury, but in Home Bay, and in Whitstable, and, and all across here. So it was, it, was, um, it, was, it was surprising when uh, seven months ago I found myself announcing to the church that we felt the Lord had pretty undeniably told us that it was time for me to hand over the team and for us to move to the west coast of America um, to be involved really with a church that's a bit like City Church and they have a passion not to just sort of hoard everyone, but the real passion of their hearts is to see people released and church plants started all over the actually very needy state of California. It sounds flashy, doesn't it? I get that. It sounds flashy, but it is desperately needy. The level of drug addiction in California is extraordinarily high. It's difficult to find someone in the church that we're going to be part of who hasn't either directly or indirectly been massively impacted by very heavy drug use. It's quite shocking, because it's not my experience, to be honest with you. It's not. Drug use is real, but without any hype, in California, it is an epidemic. It is horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. So the, the city nearest to the, the city we're living, Fresno, or we'll be living, has the uh, highest level of meth addiction in percentage, in terms of population, of any city in the whole of America. 
It's massive. So anyway, so, so, so let me rewind and attempt to, I, I hope in the next 20 minutes or so, tell you a little bit of the story that I guess is an illustration that our Lord loves us and that he speaks to us. And I, I just want to, I guess, if nothing else, encourage you, you are not some faceless number, you know, in the sort of the masses of God's people. You and I are so individually known and loved by God. And that, that is amazing because it means no matter what we face, we know that our Father has very specific plans for us to do us good even despite pain. So I hope this encourages you a little bit as I attempt to sort of tell you about um, the last sort of three years really and how it all started in the lead up to my sabbatical. And um, so a sabbatical, in case you don't know, is a, is, a, is a posh word for a bit of a break, basically. It's a privileged break that pastors um, sometimes have every few years. Um, and uh, if take, you, take you back in your mind to about uh, three and a half years ago. So it's September time, 2013, leading up. And I had a, a sabbatical coming the following Easter, six months later. And I was absolutely exhausted. I'd been leading the team for about six and a half years, and I was really tired. By nature, I'm quite a kind of high-energy guy, quite driven, um, and just disappointments and difficulties and things that were really just hard had bit by bit by bit got to me. I think as Spurgeon said, rarely will a man die from a single bee sting, but from a, from a thousand he might. And that's kind of what it felt like. It wasn't like I'd had terrible suffering compared with other people. But disappointment had just sort of, you know, it leaks into you sometimes, doesn't it? And discouragement is the work of the enemy. And I'd allowed it just to kind of get into me. My head was a bit down. I was like, oh, you know. And in that time, um, and just to say, by the way, here, just a kind of uh, something that I guess you'll have to sort of uh, receive or else the next 20 minutes won't make much sense. As a church, we believe in something called prophecy or prophetic words, which in simple terms really means that we believe God does speak to us. And he has spoken ultimately through the Bible. This is the perfect prophecy. And we weigh all other prophecies under this. But we do, don't we, as a family? We believe that, that our father likes to actually talk to his children, funnily enough, bizarrely enough. And he often speaks to one child to tell the other child, hey, this is what I think of you. That's kind of what it is. So anyway, just so you know, when I talk about the coming encouragement and prophecies, you know what I'm talking about. It's God speaking to us for the now. So anyway, so there I am. I'm a tired uh, pastor man looking forward to this, uh, this upcoming sabbatical six months later. And um, there's a couple of guys who with a prophetic gift, particularly called uh, Mike Bollinger and Angela Kem. And they come down to Canterbury and... Uh, they start, uh, they're going to figure quite heavily in this story. And um, they, uh, they started to, you know, speak. They were there for the weekend and they were prophesying various things. And they started to say that your, that Tom, that the, the, um, they said, you, there's a bucket of dreams, like pro- prophecies that God's given you. And you've taken out of the, the bucket the prophecies that you personally are going to see fulfilled. And in that bucket, there's now other prophecies that you've heard that will actually be fulfilled through your spiritual sons and your daughters. So, oh, okay. 
I'm still quite young at this point. This is three years ago. I'm about 36, thinking, okay, this sounds like the Lord's getting me ready for something, a bit of a change. And alongside that, both of them were speaking repeatedly about a new season where rather than me doing stuff, it was a new season where I was called to get others to do it. So rather than me just preaching, it was to help others preach. Rather than me spotting the sign that was ski whiff on a Sunday morning, it was encouraging others to do it. It was all about a new season of training, training, training. Because God wanted me to actually be more mobile. So that I wasn't locked into City Church, but I could be more mobile to actually be used by him in different places. So far, so good. That sounds fine. Sounds encouraging. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, um, getting ready for this and thinking, this sounds, this sounds fine, you know, seeing leaders raised up and getting used to this. Then I have my sabbatical six months later, April 23 years ago, that's 2014. Two months. And it was the most painful two months of my life. I thought it was going to be a heavenly back rub. Well done, son. You've done well. Faithful, good and servant. And our, our Father in heaven, in great mercy and love, for two months, showed me more sin, more um, wrong motives in my heart, more... Well, I mean, basically every possible sin you could imagine, I suddenly realized I was guilty of. By the grace of God, not things that would disqualify me, but genuinely... A lot of the pain and the things I was carrying was actually because of wrong motives and wrong um, expectations and just, you know, just dark stuff that I didn't realize was there, but it was there. And so those two months, I did not laugh a lot. Let's put it that way. And everyone was thinking, oh, you're so lucky in having this sabbatical. And I'm like, you must be joking. Have you seen, read the Bible? When you tend to go into the wilderness and it's just you and God, it isn't always very pleasant. You know, Jacob, wrestling with God, comes out with a limp. You see it again and again, and that's what happened to me. And right at the end of those two months, I, I, uh, I went to a friend of a friend, a guy called Travis, who lived in California, led a church there. I didn't really know him, but he said, look, if you want a break, I will sort you out with somewhere to stay. Come out to California, and you can have some retreat time there at the end of your sabbatical. So I'm like, great, sounds good. So I fly over. And uh, meet this guy, Travis, again, briefly, and have a great few days in a, in a cabin in the woods. And it's, it's great. It's a continuation of what God's been saying. And on the Sunday, I go to his church. It's very nice, very pleasant. Afterwards, I go back to his house. He's got five girls, all under the age of 10. So it's, it's a busy house, shall we say. So after lunch, I go for a walk. You know, every Englishman goes for a walk. And they're like, go for a walk? What are you talking about? So I attempt to go for a walk. Uh, and they don't really have pavements in America, genuinely. So I'm sort of being tooted at as I'm walking along the road, trying to, you know, just walk off the lunch. And I go for a bit of a walk and a stroll around the neighborhood, minding my own business. And as I come back to their house, I'm about to go back in, and I feel compelled actually just to sit down on the very hot tarmac driveway, because it's very hot there. It's about 40 degrees a lot of the year. So sit, sit down. And... I'm instantly overwhelmed, involuntarily, with a sense of grief. It was totally shocking. And I'm sitting there just weeping. And I said to, I said to God, I said, why? I'm on sabbatical. I'm meant to be having a nice... I'm in California. Why am I crying? 
And quick as a flash, I felt him say back to me, because you're feeling now what you will feel one day when you live here. And you grieve your daughters losing their English accents. And you can't get a decent curry. (laughs) And you miss your mates. And there's no pubs anywhere. And I'm just sitting there, just overcome with grief. And I go into the house, and they're like, Trav and Tiffany, who are the couple who are very key in the church, they're like, are you okay? And I try to explain it. But obviously, it, it's sort of awkward. And then the next thing is, I'm on a plane and flying home. So I don't know what to do with this. I'm like, this is just weird. Six weeks later, I'm going up to a meeting with a leader called Mike Betts, who some of you will know, up in Norfolk. At the last minute, a guy called Graham Hall, uh, another leader, he says, oh, I'm going to that meeting as well. Do you want to lift? I'm like, great, fantastic. So Graham very uh, kindly offers to drive me up there, and halfway up the motorway, I just throw, we're talking about life, and I mentioned that I'd had this sabbatical and I was in America. and didn't say anything more than that. And his whole body sort of changed when I said that. And he went, has anyone ever prophesied over you about America? And I went, no. And he said, six weeks ago exactly, which was the exact week when I was there, he had no idea. I haven't spoken to him for about a year probably at this point. He said, out of the blue, I had the most vivid, compelling vision of you and your family living in America and you helping to fly the flag for new frontiers out there. And it was so vivid and so sort of shocking, I had to ring up Mike Betts, who's this kind of bit of a father figure to me, and just tell him, I've just seen this and you just need to know. So I'm like, he just says it very calmly as if, like, do you want to get a McDonald's? You know, and I'm like freaking out. What? what? Oh my goodness, you know, because as he says it, the weight of God comes into the car. Two or three sentences, not, not hyped at all, just spoken normally, but the power of God rested on them. And I'm physically, like, shocked and crying. No big surprise, I'm crying again. And I'm just, I'm like, what is going on? And I said to him, you can't just say that in a light-hearted way. That's my whole life you're talking about. You're saying, oh, yeah, should we get McDonald's and you're going to live in America? Right, you know, I'm just like, and he said, no, 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 calm down, calm down. It's going to be the source of most wonderful blessing. I can see it. It's going to be a real source of blessing for you. And I said to him, did you, did you see anywhere specific? It's quite a big place, America. And he said, I did see California. So this begins the journey of, I now have a 39-page document from the last three years of God speaking in similar ways. This begins this journey where wherever I look, I feel God is just saying and speaking and saying, I'm, I'm starting to get you ready. And over the next few months, so that was in the summer, over the next autumn term, in lots of ways which I won't go into now because of time, he starts to continue to speak. And I'm writing this down, keeping track of it, amazed at how much the Lord is, is continuing to do this. Then I go to a meeting in January um, where I'm with some other um, leaders. And another pastor there, a guy called um, uh, Chick, Steve Chick, and he leads a church in Winchester. And again, I don't really know Steve. And he just said, he prophesied over me. He said, Tom, I, I, I saw you. And I was reminded of Philip. In the book of Acts, there's a guy called Philip. And he says, and Philip is in this place called Samaria, which at that point 
It's full of God doing stuff. It's really exciting. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, he's removed from that place. And he sends him to a desert place. Now, the city where we're going is in, has been in a five-year drought, the whole of the state of California. So when I was there, all the reservoirs were dangerously low. It was, it's literally like a desert. It's only about four hours from Death Valley, which is one of the hottest places in the world. And he just said, I don't know why this is, I just feel like Philip being sent suddenly to, to, to the middle of nowhere, to a desert place. But he was obedient, and there was tremendous fruit that came of it. I don't know if that was relevant to you, Tom. Just thought I'd share it with you. So I'm like, interesting, interesting. Not giving anything away, but thinking, this is, this is just um, unbelievable. So that was the January. Then in February, this guy, Mike Betts, who I'm totally accountable with, and he oversees and serves the family of churches that we're part of. He comes down to Canterbury, preaches in the morning, then we have uh, a curry and have um, some time together. And he says to me, and he knows about all these ways that uh, God seems to be speaking about getting us ready to go. And he says, Tom, I'm going to, over the next two hours, attempt to pour as much cold water on this whole idea as I possibly can. Because honestly... You know, your life here in Canterbury and in this area is so fruitful. There's so much exciting and positive things happening. You know, I, he said, I would need not one or two, I would need three angels from heaven to tell me that this is right if it was to be true. Now, of course, he was semi-joking, but he was trying to illustrate the point. And over those next two or three hours, um, the only way I can put it is, is that this guy, uh, who's incredibly loving, he kind of opposed me. He opposed this idea. And uh, he's a guy who's very gentle, but he has a, a lot of kind of spiritual authority. And it was quite a painful few hours, to be honest with you. I felt like I'd sort of got into a bit of a boxing ring. And, and, and he was like, dush, 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 dush. and I came out thinking, maybe I'm just imagining all of this. You know, maybe this is just crazy. And, uh, and what God had done in that time with Mike was just sort of pierce the bubble of it getting a bit too, getting ahead of itself a little bit. I'm quite an enthusiast. And if God says something, I'm like, let's do it now, go. And I think what God was doing was just like, whoa, slow down a little bit. And at a similar time of, that, of, of, of Mike coming, um, for the first time, me and Josie got on a train and we went to visit one of the church plants that had recently been involved with in Lille. And we loved it. We thought, wow, we going to this baby church and just encouraging these guys, this is great fun. And, I, and then we did the same in, in uh, Finland. And, and I remember thinking, oh, do you know what? Maybe I am crazy. Maybe this whole moving to California thing is just, I had too much cheese on my pizza or something, and I've just imagined it. You know, who, who knows? Um, so it starts to kind of, the intensity of it starts to die off a little bit. But that summer, two summers ago, um, we were going out as a family for a month to this city, to, to Visalia in central um, California, to have a month there with our friends, on the surface of it, just to have a holiday, but the kind of, you know, the secret agenda was, Lord, are you going to give us faith that we could move here? But before we go, Josie has never been to America before. Honestly, she has zero desire to go to America. We love our life here. So it's slightly awkward, because we're going there, a month with these lovely guys, and they're kind of like, so what do you think? And we're kind of like, ah, not really sure. So it's, it's a slightly, 
we're anticipating this month there slightly nervously. But, you know, we've, we've had it in the diary for ages, so we go. And in that month, and this is not an exaggeration, just about every conceivable calamity that could happen whilst in America did happen. From forest fires, our youngest daughter almost drowned twice. There was um, a black bear that got into one of the holiday homes that we were in. Literally, a black bear in the garage right next to us. There were um, rattlesnakes in the gardens because there was a forest fire that was driving all the snakes into the, the, uh, into the surrounding gardens. Um, our friend Travis almost went blind. Um, Josie and Tiffany were in a car with all the kids and they had a massive car crash, wrote off their brand new car and could have easily died. There was one night when we, were at, we went out with them and a couple of other couples to have a meal and the phone call came through that the babysitters had missed one of the kids, many kids, and she had got inside the pool and had been found floating in the pool. And she'd had, when they dragged her out, her face was blue. She seemed to be breathing, but you probably should come home. So this whole month was crazy. It was, it was crazy, um, to be honest with you. And, and this was the extraordinary thing, though. Despite all of this, when we got home, I think it's true to say, still, in our heart of hearts, I think we could say we could imagine that the Lord might be sending us there. Whilst we were there, a, a, a wonderful lady called Sue Chambers, some of you will know Sue, as part of the Whitstable site, who knew nothing about any of this, uh, quite a quiet, um, very humble lady. She, she emailed me in, halfway through about in, in California in this month. And she said, Tom, I just suddenly felt reminded, out of the blue, of Terry Virgo's last ever sermon at Stoneley. And in that sermon, it was from Deuteronomy 32, I think, and there's a phrase which says the mother eagle breaks up her nest, because they're very high, these, these eagle nests on a cliff. She breaks up the nest in order to make it uncomfortable for the baby eaglets to get them to fly. And it was called Eagles Are Born to Fly. And Terry used this brilliant image to say to all of us as a movement, come on, We've got too comfortable. Let's go. And he, and he stopped the conference after that, and it was amazing. And she just said, I just feel, randomly, this is relevant for you as a family. I don't know if this means anything, but I just feel God is saying this to you. It's time that he's breaking up the nest, and you need to get ready to fly. I mean, this is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So we come back from our month there, and within a few days, another guy in our church called Neil Greathead some of you might know Neil. Again, he doesn't know anything. And he says, Tom, Tom, I've got to meet with you. And I'm like, okay, Neil. And he says, I'll meet you in Nero's, Canterbury. So I meet him in Nero's, and he's shaking. He's actually shaking. He says, I'm really nervous. I said, what? what? Okay, what? What's... he said, I'm really nervous about doing this because you're my pastor. But I feel like I have to say to you this, is that you love this church so deeply, but you are in danger of missing the ministry opportunities that God has next for you because of your love and your focus on this church. And God is saying to you, it's time to get ready to hand over the leadership of the church because he's going to open up other places for you to go and you need to be ready for this. Now, if you just imagine this, put yourself in his perspective, saying this to the leader of your church is quite a bold thing. It's basically time for you to stop leading because you're going to go and move somewhere else. 
So once again, I'm like, this is amazing. God, you are just saying it again and again and again and again. That was in the uh, July. September comes by, and I'm at a, um, a leaders' gathering up in Ipswich. And uh, again, Mike Betts and other people are there. And there's a guy called Adrian Holloway, who I hadn't seen for two or three years. He's a good friend. He just happened to be at this, at this, at this kind of conference thing. The very last session of these two days of prayer and equipping, as it's called, Mike Betts, who leads the whole thing, said, right, we're going to have a Holy Spirit glass-blowing session. What he means by that is we're not going to set an agenda, but we want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to men and women about particular places and nations where God is going to call them to go. And I'm sitting there, and as soon as he says that, my heart's going, because I'm thinking, oh, wow. You know, I, I think he's saying something. I think Mike's on a bit of a journey with this. I'm not sure how keen he is on... You know, I, so I'm sitting here kind of trying to keep calm, but thinking, Lord, are you going to say anything? Halfway through the session, this guy, Adrian, if you know Adrian, he's very funny and quite sort of dramatic. I'm standing like, there, like, like this, you know, wondering, what should I do? And Adrian's sitting next to me with his head in his hands. And then suddenly he springs, <laughs> he just springs up and actually makes me kind of jump because he, you know, he jumps up very dramatically next to me and says, Tom, this whole session... I've had this one thought going round and round my head, and I can't get it out of my head. I don't know why it's in my head, because it's really odd, but I'm just thinking I have to tell you is this, is this, is that, Tom, you could lead a church in America. I don't know why I've got to say that to you, but I just feel like I need to say that to you. So I'm like, wherever I go, everyone is saying the same thing. So I, I did say to him, I said, Adrian, I've got to be honest with you, over the last two years... This has just been this amazing, relentless message of God, saying it again and again. And as I say that to him, he starts crying. And he says, I don't want you to go. I love you. And I thought, well, it's your fault. You just prophesied it over me. So, so it carries on. That Next month, I'm at another meeting. And this time, I'm in a house in Norwich. But Mike has got a, a contact who is an Indian prophet called Shaju, who can't speak a word of English but has this extraordinary track record in terms of being able to speak and prophesy with tremendous accuracy. And he, via Skype, is prophesying through a, another man who is in Qatar, who can translate the Indian into English, and he's translating. We're sitting, me and Mike and Steph and Goff and these other guys on the team are sitting for three hours around this laptop because everything is taking twice as long about various things as it's going through the translator. And then anyway, in the end, this guy... Mike has literally just given him the names of the guys in his team. He knows nothing else. And he goes, Tom Shaw. And he says, Tom, you have a, um, you have a passion to see um, churches started and strengthened all over the world. And you are content. It's amazing. He says, you are content to see God multiplying his kingdom in the city where you are. But God's not satisfied with that. God wants to use you to multiply that in places all over the world, to start and to strengthen churches. So it is time for you to get ready for God to open up doors all over the world because you are called to help start and strengthen churches. This is an Indian prophet who can't speak a word of English, has no idea who I am, and yet he's like, it's like he's my best friend and knows exactly how I'm hardwired. You are content with this, but God's saying, no, 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 I'm, I want to do more through you than that. So everyone in the room's giggling away, laughing, because they know 
what's been happening. But of course, um, for me, it's just another kind of confirmation. I'll, have a, I'll give you a couple more stories and then I'll, I'll stop. But you get the idea. It's been an amazing, an amazing two or three years. I, uh, I started to feel by this point that um, I really had to kind of respond. And I remember walking um, across a road, across Hollow Lane, um, opposite Winchip School, if you know it, in Canterbury. And I was just crossing the road, and it was quite, I had this amazing moment where I felt God, the Father, put his, it was like he put his hand behind my back. And if you've got small kids, you'll know what, when you're crossing a road, if they're dawdling, you kind of do this, don't you? You want to just gently hurry up. And it was honestly like a physical experience. I felt him say, do this with me, as I crossed the road, and I, and I felt him say, I've spoken to you now. It's not your church. It never was your church. You need to get on with it. And it was a kind of a bit of a fear of the Lord type moment because I was quite scared by all of this. It felt very intimidating, but the Lord was saying, come on, get on with this. A few weeks later, a guy who leads a church in America, again, who knew nothing about this, he just emailed me out of the blue and said, I don't know why, but I felt God say to you, I was reading my scriptures for the morning, and I think it was in Isaiah where it says, you will have vineyards that you did not plant and cities that you did not build, or something like that. And he was just, he said, I felt God saying to you, I'm going to give you loads of things that you haven't worked for, that you don't really deserve, that you can't lay credit for. So this is now almost near the end of, of, our, of, our, of our journey. This is now February time of last year. And I, I felt like I've got to, I've got to, you know, start to shape things differently so that I can respond to this. And in Canterbury, the church, we have three different sites, three different congregations. And I met with some of the leaders from one of the sites. And I wasn't going to tell them that we were going, but I wanted to tell them that they as leaders needed to step up because I was going to tell them later on that I would be leaving. But now, basically, my, my, I said, guys, can I have a meeting with you? And there was a, a lady called Jackie, a guy called Sarah Davis, and a guy called Sam. And uh, we were sitting there, and they were all looking very serious as we started this meeting. And I, and I, I said, guys, you don't have to look so serious. It's all right. Um, but I do feel like I need to just, you know, talk to you. And Sarah, she said, oh, that's a relief. For a moment, I thought you were going to tell us you're moving to America. <laughs> and I was like, what, why, 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 would you say, why would you say that, Sarah? What, why, why? And she just said, this week, I had the most vivid an upsetting dream. And in the dream, you were telling us as a church that you're moving to America. And she said it was so upsetting and so um, horrific, I actually woke up. She said, I woke up because it, it disturbed me so much. But then, she said, I fell back to sleep and had a second dream. And in the second dream, Jesus appeared to me. And he said, provision, provision, provision and I knew it would be okay and she just said this in front of all the leaders and, and, and she said anyway so what was it you wanted to tell, tell us <laughs> so I was like I was on the brink of bursting into tears and I had to kind of cover it up and just talk about general generally being more released and you know God sort of speaking to us so that was a February and that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back if you know what I mean and I by that point, we knew we had to make a 